Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. This episode is one that's close to the heart. Luke Russert is a best-selling author, Emmy Award-winning news correspondent, and son of the late, great journalist Tim Russert. Back in 2008, shortly after his father's death, Russert joined NBC News just out of college. Countering the skeptics, he worked hard and became an important piece of political news coverage, like his dad. He spent eight years covering midterm and presidential elections, reporting on some of the biggest political issues of our time. His work earned him Emmy nominations for Best Reporting and Outstanding Live Coverage before he made the surprising decision to resign in 2016. Russert then embarked on a journey of self-discovery, traveling to more than 60 countries to discover his true purpose. Earlier this year, he released his memoir, Look For Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself, in which he opens up about his relationship with his dad and reflects on his life and why he needed to leave everything to discover its meaning. Russert's memoir is now a New York Times bestseller. My good friend Savannah Guthrie, who worked with Russert in Washington, D.C., talked to him ahead of its release. Hi. Hi. <laughs> this how feels goes so it? weird. My old office mate. I know, exactly. <laughs> Reunited again. You know, people use that expression, you've been on a journey, but you've actually been on a journey. What has it been like to go through these years and be writing a book? Uh, well, I left NBC and I was kind of going through this quarter life crisis that I would call it. I didn't necessarily know what my purpose was. I didn't feel fulfilled. I liked the work, but some days it left me empty. So I wanted to sort of figure that out and answer that question. And it turned into what was supposed to be about six months of travel into a three-year odyssey around six continents and over 65 countries and trying to figure out, okay, who are you independent of your parents? Who are you independent of your profession, your hometown? And what are you really about? And that's what I tried to answer in the book. And it, it took a while to get there and it had to go to some dark places, some raw places. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it, it felt great getting out of there. What does it feel like to be putting this all out into the world. It's cathartic. And it's something which I didn't know I was capable of until I started to do it. And I realized that the story I was telling had a lot of universal truths, things that a lot of people could appreciate, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is. And I wanted to put it out there so folks felt a little less lost, but also for me to be able to say, okay, this is who I am. This is what I went through. I hope you understand me a little bit better. And if it helps you out along the way, that's even better and more fantastic than I could ever have imagined. Well, of course, this journey begins in many ways with your father's passing, yeah. which was a heartbreaking and shocking moment that as a young man, you had to share with everybody. 22 years old, and I got the phone call and it was an NBC number. And I thought it was him, to be honest with you, sort of checking in on me because I was over in Italy. And it was his assistant, and she said, your dad fainted. And I knew right away something was wrong, because you remember how hard he worked in his work ethic. And 
that wasn't a guy who fainted and eventually found out that he passed away and it was soul crushing. But the stuff that I remember at the time, because it was such a whirlwind, it was literally coming into a nation grieving, which I never expected. You know, my mom and I thought it would be sort of a big deal in Washington. Mm. But when we went to his wake and people had driven hundreds, if not thousands of miles to come say their last respects, it was really something that I came to understand is this is bigger than just my, me losing a dad. This is a lot of loss for a lot of people. And it forced me to try to be strong and it forced me to try and lessen the pain of the loss of other people. But in that moment, I wasn't necessarily processing the grief myself. It was sort of throw yourself into the funeral, throw yourself into the work afterwards. And it wasn't until years later that I realized that. You were asked to do a lot in those days. I mean, I remember being at your father's memorial service and you gave the eulogy. And I can't imagine standing up at 22 years old in that crowd. Under those circumstances, you're heartbreaking and then feeling like you have to somehow give words to this legacy. I write in the book about putting the eulogy together. And I was by myself in my apartment. It was empty at the time. There was no furniture in there. I had just graduated college. And I sat down at this little kitchenette to sit there and sort of say, okay, what can I do? And words started to flow out. Because I really feel that that was sort of my father speaking to me in a way. And then I went and got his book. And he had an entire chapter on loss. And I read that. And it was almost like he was talking to me. And getting me through it. Right? What a gift. And so I read that chapter. And suddenly everything comes together. And I wrote it in a few hours straight. I read it through one time, maybe twice afterwards. I didn't show it to anybody. And I said, I'm going to go give it. Now, my mother, who's a professional writer, goes, can I see it? Can I see it? Can I see it? And I said, no, this is, this is mine, and this is something that I have to do for dad. And it, it, it was quite nerve-wracking to be up there in the church at the lectern, and you look out, and you see the face of Barack Obama and John McCain and Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Ethel Kennedy, right? But then I looked in the back, and I saw the faces of my friends who I had known for years. And then I said, okay. We'll be all right. We'll be all right. And I felt my father there too. So, and I knew I couldn't let him down. So I did the best I could. Well, you, it was a shining moment for you in one of the hardest moments of your life. And through that and people coming to know you, suddenly NBC News says, We see something in you. Would you like to come work here? And had you really ever thought about doing something like that before that moment? No, because I had always seen politics as sort of my father. And I was more interested in sports or, in, or international relations. I had been doing some sports radio. And then I thought, maybe I'll get a graduate degree in international relations. My mom does so many things abroad. And NBC came to me. And a few others came up to me, too. And they said, you know, you have a gift. You have a natural talent. The name didn't hurt either. Would you like to pursue this? And I honestly didn't know. I was uncomfortable a little bit. But then I sort of started to think and I said, okay, well, there's a reason why the universe is operating in this manner. There's a reason why this opportunity came up. And would you, Luke, be comfortable if 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, you thought back at this and said, you know, I didn't take that opportunity. I didn't take that chance. Let's sort of see what you have. So I signed a one-year deal. They actually wanted to do longer at the beginning. I said, no, just do do one. So I just want to see what I have. And it started out doing some great stories from the youth vote. And then once the election was over and uh, President Obama went into office, things sort of shifted. 
So I was a little lost. I didn't know what the opportunity would, would mean. But I had some time left on the deal. And I said, we're shorthanded on Capitol Hill. Send me up there. I'll fill up the internal hot file that you remember so well. <laughs> and those types of things that we see at NBC. And was off air. And I actually really liked it because I was able to develop sourcing, was able to go to these press conferences, was doing radio hits and Sunday mornings and at weird hours. But it was a wonderful education. And then that parlayed into covering Congress very closely. And I loved that beat because it was part history, part politics. And it was a building my father had worked in. And I just, it was Washington. And I loved it. But talk about setting up a huge challenge for yourself to not only go into the family business, but with that last name mm. under those circumstances. It couldn't have been easy. And I, I know people would criticize oh, yeah. and say, oh, why does he have that job? That's a lot to, to take on. It was hard. And I knew that was going to happen. I wasn't naive. And I think what made it more difficult was that I had the job just when social media came up and was much more prevalent. So it was really easy to read nasty things about yourself. And I think that contributed to anxiety. Because I would always put out a sort of jocular bravado, put the shield out, never let them see you sweat, right? Keep calm, carry on, and move forward. And as you know, that's not always easy. There are moments when internally you go, oh, man, I wish that someone would just give me a break or, oh, I'm doing my best here. You know, there's so many things that are incoming. But there was also a challenge aspect to that that I sort of gravitated to, which was that, okay, I'm going to take this criticism. I know it. But that means that I have to work 10 times harder to prove myself and try to limit unforced errors and try to do the best job I possibly can so that at the end of the day, people who pay attention go, you know what, you earned your keep. And when I left the Hill, that was the greatest compliment I had. Some of these crusty old Hill reporters that have been there for 30 years and have seen everything. They I call came them up, the scribes. <laughs> that's exactly what they are. <laughs> and they came up to me and said, you know, we were very skeptical of you. But at the end of the day, you proved yourself to us, if nobody else. And that was enough for me. Well, you did prove yourself. And that's why it was all the more surprising when you decided to walk away. Yeah. We could watch you on TV and see your star rise and see the successes that were being accumulated. What was going on inside with you in that time? It was interesting because I saw the trajectory. I was incredibly blessed that I had become established, gotten the name, was doing things on television, had developed great sources in Washington. And as I write, this sort of brass ring was to some degree in my grasp. And who knows what the future would have held onto. But there is a void inside that wasn't being filled. There was a sense of, is there something else out there? And I turned 30, which at the time I thought was getting old. I remember it's those not days. now. No. <laughs> and I saw friends of mine settling down, having children, and going into that sort of next phase in life. And I realized that in my 20s that I had really applied myself and given everything to this job and to this legacy and to this position. But who was I? And I couldn't answer the question. And that bothered me because I knew that going forward in life, if I didn't take an opportunity to pause and reassess, then I would be way worse off for it. And I needed that pause just to even have the time to think because there's always the next thing in media. There's often always the next thing in life. And so it was the combination of that a very hectic work environment and seeing people settle down. And I said, I just need six months of anything just to sort of figure out what's going on here. It takes courage to walk away. It takes more courage when you don't really have a plan or right. know what you're going to do. 
And you didn't. You had a truck, a dog, and a roadmap. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those things where I knew I had to get out of my hometown. And I had to get away from my last name. I had to get away from the world that I knew. And that was the only way to really properly assess things and process things. And you referenced the truck and the dog. And so the first solo trip I did was I drove through Maine. I drove the entire state about a week to 10 days. And I was a little anxious beforehand because I had never done anything like that. My parents always would keep tabs on me. I had a lot of fun in college, but there was always check in, you know, don't do anything too crazy. I think the craziest thing I did was take an RV from Boston to Notre Dame with my friends. <laughs> I never really got too far untethered. And I got in the truck and it was a truck that my father had given me when I had graduated from high school. And I had my dog and that was sort of, okay, you're on your own, but your dad's in that truck with you. Your dog is there. And the dog would look over at me and it sort of travels with Charlie, like John Steinbeck, right? But that was my first foray into real solo travel. And it was eye-opening because I was forced to wrestle with the thoughts in my head. There wasn't any next thing planned. The only thing that was next was, well, am I going to take that road or take that road? Do I want to go on the coastal side or do I want to go through the woods? And I would start talking to the dog. <laughs> Which way do you want to go? And he would look at me, you're driving this truck. But it was so rewarding because once I did that, I started to think a lot more and sort of assess things and really had a healthy dose of self-awareness. But my father was never too far. And I write in the book, every time I would go in the glove compartment, you know, he had on the envelope, like, Luke's registration. <laughs> like, this is what you take out. Like, don't get pulled over. <laughs> it's like, thanks, Dad. I appreciate it. You talk about self-awareness. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I was struck by in the book is you're really transparent about that these travels and this opportunity is a real privilege. Mm -hmm. It is a blessing. And you know that. It is. And it's obviously, I'm not naive to think everyone can do it. Uh, And I realized that when I was doing it, I said, wow, I am so lucky. I am so blessed to be able to have this gift, this gift of time and this opportunity to travel and to see new things. I was very conscientious of that because I've dealt with the, what I would say, the weight of privilege. And a lot of folks see it and they go, well, that guy doesn't have a bad day, right? There's no way he can have a bad day. He's got everything going on for him. And I understand that. I'm conscientious of that. People have it so way worse off than I ever did. But it's still at some point when you have an opportunity to try to make things right in your own mind, and your own heart, you, you got to take it. And I did. Um, and I was always conscientious of it and always tried to, to impart the knowledge that I gained when I traveled and just be kind and not develop an ego in any capacity. People sometimes say you have to step outside your own culture to really see it. And I think the same could be true. It, travel helps you see something new about yourself. I couldn't agree with you more. And when you go to a foreign land, you don't know the language. You don't know the customs. You're at the airport. You don't even know how you're going to get to where you're staying. And I stayed in all types of places. I I slept on the dirt floor of a pig farm, and I stayed in nice hotels and everything in between. But it's a certain way of sort of measuring who are you and what can the world teach you and what is the world going to give you away from the little world that you knew that you grew up in. And it was very interesting. I realized that growing up, my father was risk-adverse. He came from a parochial upbringing in beautiful South Buffalo, very strong Catholic neighborhood. Everybody knew each other. 
And he always would try to sort of recreate that. He didn't like to get away from the world of which he knew. My mother, on the other hand, was incredibly adventurous. Would join the Peace Corps when she was a young woman in the 1960s because that was one of the only ways women could, in fact, travel and get out back then. And I had never contemplated these things in my 20s. I had never really thought of my parents as people. And it was when I started to travel and I saw how I would react to different things that would come up, whether it was, oh gosh, I got on the wrong train <laughs> or there's no, there's no ride. I'm going to have to throw my bags back at this tuk-tuk and go through the swamps. I think about, I don't think my dad would have been very happy there. My mom would have handled it okay. Where are you on that? And I'm probably somewhere in the middle. But it's just things like that you don't think about and you start to understand your parents more as people and you understand yourself better as well. Coming up, Russert opens up about his relationship with his mom, journalist Maureen Orth, and how she inspired his travels. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. You write about your mom a lot and you write about your relationship with her. First of all, she's a writer. Yeah. She's not a shrinking violet. What no. does she think about the book? <laughs> I think like anybody who is a character in a book, they obviously are going to have their opinions about how they're portrayed. But she told me it was well-written. And that meant the world to me because she's the greatest writer I know. What did you come to learn about your mom? Because your mom is incredibly successful in mm-hmm. her own right, an accomplished journalist, and as you say, an adventurer. Yeah. But you... Talk about having a little tension with her sometimes. And how did you work that out? So growing up, my mom was very much the disciplinarian. She came from a very strict Catholic household. Her father was one of those guys that if she brought back an A minus, you'd say, why wasn't it an A? You're better. You can do better. You know, do it. And whereas my father was more of someone who goes, okay, you know, you got an A minus. If if it could have been an A, that's great. But hey, you still did a good job and, you know, keep at it. And this is what we're going to do. Your father was a love bug. (laughs) He was was a hugger. He was. He was was very emotive in a wonderful way. But so growing up, there was this sort of good cop, bad cop to a degree. And I also think that the father-son relationship is very unique. You sort of bond together. And as a young child, I would sort of see, well, my mom's being mean to me or she's She's making me feel bad about myself. And I write about that in the sense of, like, my father would give me something and my mom would be like, well, you didn't earn that. Mm. And that was a hard thing to reconcile as a young kid. And I think I developed a sort of, there was love, but there was always an uneasy tension at times. But then when I started to travel and I did some traveling with her, I began to understand her. And I also understood what she faced as a young woman joining the Peace Corps in her early 20s and being tasked with building a school in a rural part of Colombia, right outside of Medellin, I couldn't do that, right? 
And then to write all the stories that she did through the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, and you you were there for some of them. I mean, these are real intense legal stories about Michael Jackson, Woody Allen. And then, you know, she went to the border of Afghanistan right after 9-11 to talk about the opium trade there. I mean, she really put herself out there mm. all around the world. And I began to realize, wow, this was somebody who was not given anything, had to work so hard for every single thing that she had, had to work to get out of what you know, she was supposed to be a teacher or a paralegal, what were available opportunities for a lot of women back then. So she did have that chip on her shoulder. And once I knew that and I figured that out, I was like, I get why you were pushing me so much. I get that you wanted me to succeed, not just because things were available, but that you actually went out there and grabbed it. My father would say, you know, you're always loved, but you're never entitled. And I took that to heart. My mom would always say, okay, put in the work, go do it. You can be as successful as you want, but you yourself can do it and you should do it because you can. Don't feel bad about yourself, go. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a different <laughs> style. You and I have shared before, I lost my father as a teenager. You lost your father young. And I know that's always connected us. And one thing I remember is trying to learn how to be a family without him. You know, we were a family of five. We had to become a family of four. You and your mom had to learn how to be a family without him. One of the things that I don't think gets enough attention is that when one parent dies, the entire dynamics of the family shift. I'm an only child. So it was three of us before, and there was only two. And it took some time to figure that out. What are we going to do for the holidays? Where do we go? Do we go to my dad's family? Do we go to my mom's family? Do we, stand by, do we stay by ourselves? Where do we end up? But then it's the sort of dynamics of the house, just in sort of living. Now, I wasn't living with my mother, but I was a few streets away. And I realized that some of the phone calls I was getting were ones that used to go to dad. So I had to sort of step into that role where we became a unit. We had to understand one another. And we also had to deal with the things that come up in families, things that come up with managing a household. But more so than anything, it was those first few years where you feel something's missing. And do you acknowledge it? How do you process it? I know some folks that lose somebody and they'll sit a, they'll set a place at the dinner table. I know other people that, you know, they'll play music that somebody liked. For us, it was, we acknowledged it, and then we would try and just enjoy our time. But it stings. I, I think that, especially around the holidays, you feel that a lot. We can't miss that this is a really entertaining and interesting literal journey through the world. <laughs> yeah. What was one of your favorite trips that you took? So one of the things that I did that I really enjoyed was you see the American experience, what that is. And so I went to places like Vietnam because growing up, I had always heard these conversations with my parents of, well, it was the Vietnam War, it was the Vietnam era. And that was so invested in everything that they talked about. So I went there because I wanted to sort of see this for myself, this place that I had read and heard so much about over the years. And the people were so lovely and they were so accommodating. And I was just, in my mind, I was like, my gosh, we, we were at war here and we dropped all these bombs here. But these folks are so loving and forgiving and talkative. And it really 
was powerful. It opened up my mind. And I, I called my mother and I told her about all this. And she was a little bit surprised. She's like, there's really no animosity. I said, not that I felt. There was only kindness. So that was a very impactful trip for me. I went to Easter Island and saw those stone heads. And that was just surreal. The most remote inhabited place on earth. And one of the things about that place that's just you never forget is you take out your map and you have that blinking blue dot on your phone and it's really in the middle of the ocean and you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm really, really out there. So that was, uh, that, that was surreal. But then all sorts of things. You know, going to the Middle East was, was amazing and going throughout America challenging myself in Bolivia specifically. I was just about to bring that up. I mean, reading about you going to Bolivia, going to a a high altitude, very thin oxygen, and you Mm -hmm. have issues with your Mm -hmm. lungs. That sounded terrifying. So I'm in Paraguay with my mom. I'm getting ready to go to Bolivia the next day. She's not coming with me. And it's not easy to get a visa to go to Bolivia, but I think I have it figured out. And I'm having second thoughts. I'm nervous because about the visa and the altitude. And my mom goes, you got to go. You got to go. You're big. You could do it. Take care of yourself. Which is amazing that you have a mom telling you to, I don't know if your beats is okay and it's high altitude, but go. And I get to the airport in La Paz and it's so high up. It's like 14,000 feet up almost. And I can't breathe. And I'm, I'm walking from the plane to the baggage claim and I cannot breathe. And they have these little oxygen canisters the tourists can get. So I take the air and I still can't breathe. And I'm turned green in the cab ride and the guy looks in the mirror. He's like, are you okay? Not really. And I ended up at the the place where I was staying and they actually got oxygen for me. And I took basically two bottles of of oxygen and it took me a few days to to get acclimated. But then I was able to enjoy the sights and see the country and learn its cultures and learn from its people. And it was so incredibly rewarding. But that is not something my father would have done. And that was really mom. Uh, But for me, it taught me I can handle a lot. And it's okay. Have faith, believe in yourself. And you always, you also reach a point that this is where I'm supposed to be. And I didn't necessarily think that when I was sucking down all this oxygen and I couldn't sleep because the sleep apnea was made so much worse by the high altitude. But I knew I had to do it because this was understanding that part of myself that maybe I had never done anything that crazy before. And it felt good. After the break, Luke Russert shares the emotional moment he experienced in Israel that changed everything and opened his eyes to the purpose he was seeking. When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... ...trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own... Leave the kids with grandma. Yay! Trip to Texas. So go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. You took a, a trip to the Holy Land. Yeah. I know that was deeply meaningful to you. You're a person of faith. Your yeah. father, mother, certainly, their faith is very important to them. Tell me about that. So, you know, I grew up in a Catholic family, and 
I went to Mass from the time I was born. My earliest memories in Mass were playing with matchbox cars in the pew, trying not to be too loud to upset my parents. <laughs> and I always used to ask my dad, I was like, why are we here? I'm four or five years old. He's like, because you have to be conscientious of all the gifts that you've received. And you have to be mindful that you need to, to give back and be appreciative of the blessings you've had. So I always, that always resonated with me. And I did all this traveling and I started to write the book. But there was something in my head that said, you got to go to the Holy Land. You got to go to this place where, in theory, everything started, right? So I take the trip there and I have this moment where I go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Old Jerusalem and it's at night and it's about to close. And what's just so surreal when you go to old Jerusalem is all these stories that you're taught at church or at Sunday school. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm here in the environment. I'm here at the setting. And I go to this church and there's the tomb of Christ. And they go, you can go in there and pray. It's an Orthodox priest behind and you get your 30 seconds and he kind of nudges you to get out of the way. And I was at this point where I had begun to write and I began to review all the journals, but I was still sort of unsure, what was this all about? Why did I have this journey over all these years? What was I trying to, to get at? And in that moment, I have this very deep meditative state that I go into. And I ask God, I ask spirits, I go, what am I supposed to do? What is my purpose here? What did, wh why was I given all this privilege? Why was I given all these opportunities? What do you want from me? What am I supposed to do? Where, what is this about? And I hear a voice in my head. It's like, you know, he heard you. Go pray. Oh my gosh. This is crazy, right? I'm, just, I'm kind of shaking. This is, this is sort of out-of-body experience. So I walk out and I don't know what to do. I just, this is so crazy. And I started looking for something. What am I looking for? What am I looking for? What am I looking for? And I see a Buffalo Bills yarmulke. Okay. Now I'm not Jewish, right? But my father loved the Buffalo Bills. And so there's a guy selling a Buffalo Bills yarmulke in old Jerusalem at this hour. I said, well, I have to get that. And I said, well, the Western wall is open, the Wailing Wall. And I walk over there and I go, oh my gosh. I get this now. I get this now. Is that I don't have to ask permission or to, to be myself from dad. Dad would want me to be happy. And dad's not gone. Dad's with me. He's been here every step of the way. And I feel him. And I feel that. And it was just such a beautiful moment of clarity that, honest to God, I think it only have happened there because I went everywhere else and it didn't happen like that. So it was, it was, it was incredible. And I was so, uh, I was so thankful. The voice said, go pray. Yeah. You did tuck a prayer into the Western Wall for I your did. dad. What yeah. did it say? It's his favorite verse. It's from the second letter of uh, Timothy. And basically, I have fought the good fight and keep the faith. And that was completely organic. That was completely organic for me. Um, and I remember sitting there just in awe of the whole thing. And that was the same prayer that was read at his funeral. And I had actually not, I hadn't read it since then. And it was a sort of good finality. Divine. Divine, yeah. The book is called Look For Me There, mm -hmm. which is what your dad used to say. If we get separated at the baseball stadium, yeah. look for me there, I'll be right over there. But it's also about you looking for him. Yeah. And you found him. I did. 
and it took a long time and I'm still a work in progress, but that part of my life is fulfilled and I miss him every day, but I know he loves me and I know he's happy and I don't have to look for him because not only did I find him, but I carry him and he sees me, he looks out for me and we love each other. Well, he'd be so proud of you. Thank you so much. What a beautiful story of love and grief and understanding. Thanks so much to Savannah and Luke for such a touching and honest conversation. And thank you for listening to this episode of Read with Jenna. If you like what you heard, please give Read with Jenna a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Make sure to tell your friends about us, and new episodes drop every Thursday. The fun doesn't stop here. Want to join our Read with Jenna community of book lovers? Head to today.com slash readwithjenna to find our monthly book list and to sign up for our newsletter. You can also find us on Instagram at readwithjenna. This episode of Read with Jenna is produced by Asha Parker, Yael Federbush, and Kate Saunders. Our associate audio engineer is Juliana Masterilli. Our audio engineer is Katherine Anderson. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Missy Dunlap-Parsons is our executive producer. And Libby Least is the executive vice president of Today and Lifestyle. Three great words. Free Fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bottom up, up, up. Bell one time on Friday. Participating McDonald's through 12 31 Excludes tax. Must update rewards.